Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Justin, one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace, and have the privilege of leading us in a time of, of worship through the Word of God as we conclude a time of worship through singing. We're going to talk today, if, you, if you're new with us, we're walking through 1 Timothy, and we're going to continue that. You can follow along in, in, in your Bible, in your lap, and then we'll have the words on the screen as well. And we're going to be talking about leadership today and, and the reality that leadership matters. Leadership matters, and it's hard to be a good leader. That we know that a leader has troubles going on within, in their own hearts, and they face troubles from without, the pressures of leading. Uh, we've seen over, over our time the, the, study, the, the struggles that leaders have had. Uh, we, we know that's happened in the Catholic Church. We saw a study done in 2002 uh, when uh, 11,000 allegations were made of sexual misconduct uh, over the course of, of 4,392 of the priests in the Catholic Church just in the United States of America. That's 4% of all of the priests. We've seen the black mark that that's left on the Catholic Church's reputation. But we know that Protestants are, are not exempt to this either. In 2006, there was a study done. They surveyed a th- over 1,000 pastors. And what they found is that every single one of those pastors they interviewed knew somebody, a colleague of theirs, a close friend, who had left the ministry of a local church due to one of the three following reasons, either burnout, in, in, inward burnout in their own personal lives, church conflict that they'd experienced, or a moral failure on, on their part. Of these pastors that were interviewed, 50% of them admitted to use of pornography in some fashion, 37% of them uh, to inappropriate sexual behavior with somebody inside of their church. And th- these are just the ones that admitted uh, we saw that 70% of them said that they struggled in some fashion with depression and low self-esteem. That 80% of them saw that, felt that ministry negatively affected their family life. And 33% of them said it, they would classify it as a hazard to their family life. And then 50% of them, 50, half of them that were interviewed said that they would quit the ministry if they could, if they could find another job, another vocation. It's tough. And we've seen black marks in our own church. Uh, our, one of our youth pastors back in the 90s uh, just, just started here, weeks that he was here, uh, and all of a sudden, middle of the night, he was missing. Didn't know where he was, left a wife and a young, young baby, ran off to Las Vegas with some girl, never to be seen by his family again. We had a little while later a pastor who was caught uh, looking at pornography in the church office and, and found out that it was an addiction of his. Now, that one has a beautiful redemption story. As he went down to California, actually was, was, had his life turned around through an red- addiction recovery program called Celebrate Recovery, became the pastor of that Celebrate Recovery, is now weekly leading 500 people plus a week into Christ-centered recovery. And when we started our Celebrate Recovery here, he flew up, spoke in our church, and then led that first night of Celebrate Recovery. It's amazing to see what God is doing. On an unrelated note, our our youth pastor Daniel is awesome. So (laughs) I just want to make you feel... (laughs) All right. So we we would say it this way. As the leader goes, so goes the nation. As the leader goes, so goes the nation. We certainly see this in Israel's history. And over and over again, we would see that the king's heart would reflect the nation's heart. They would lead. And we see this of, of a king in First Kings 15. It says that he, this is Israel's king Basha, he, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, you could say he was bad because it's Okay, sorry. And, and walked in the ways of Jeroboam, and the sin, now listen, the sin he ca- had caused Israel to commit. 
So, so not only does he move down a sinful path, but it says the nation followed him. That over and over again, we see the sinful kings lead the nation of Israel into division, into war, conflict, and idolatry, idol worship. And, and we see the good kings, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, that they lead the people back to trusting and obeying God, a revival toward his word, and the nation's blessed and they prosper. We could also, we could tweak this saying to say, as the leader goes, so goes the church. That we see where there's good, healthy church leadership, we see a move toward healthy discipleship, of, of freedom from sin, of, of unity and love within the church, and being, a, being salt and light without, and that Jesus' name is lifted high. But when there is unhealthy, sinful leadership, they lead the body, not just down wrong belief, but that what follows is wrong living. We've seen power grossly abused in the church. We've seen division, and we've seen Jesus' name dra dragged through the mud. This is certainly the case of Timothy here in the Ephesian church, where Paul is writing to him. This is the church at Ephesus, and we see that there are major problems. Uh, and a lot of this starts with these false teachers. Imagine this happening in your church. The false teachers inside the church were twisting the gospel. They were telling a distorted message of the gospel, and this false message led to gross misconduct in their hearts. They, we, saw, we saw them in, in misabusing. Uh, we saw sexual abuse. We saw uh, them sleeping around, even the pastors, the leaders themselves, that many of them were just in it for the money and the power and, and the fame, that many of them looked down on marriage and the family unit as a whole, and those who were in a family, it was not being managed well, let alone the management of the church. And as a result, the, the church in Ephesus was a terrible testimony to the people in their community. We've been studying through this uh, book, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy here in 1 Timothy. And we're going to see today in chapter 3, it's a continuation of this discussion. At the end of chapter 3, we saw that this letter is all about how God's household ought to behave, how we ought to live. We saw in chapter 1 that he calls them to rebuke or to even remove, if necessary, those false teachers in the church that are causing destruction and disturbances. And he said those disturbances are distracting them from chapter 2, being the kind of people who pray for all people even their perceived enemies, and that they would preach the gospel to all people, no boundary lines. Because God's heart is the heart for all men and women to be saved and to know him through Jesus. And we saw that some of these disruptions last week at the back half of chapter 2 were, were the, their, their eruption in their anger and fighting in the way that they were dressing in the disorder in the church. And we saw last week that he spoke to the concepts of women in leadership. And, and then this week he's turning the page to talk about men in leadership, particular men. And what we're going to see here today, we, we've seen Paul call out and condemn bad leaders, sinful leaders, but today he's going to call in and commend good, biblical, healthy leadership. That's what we're going to look at. If you have your uh, bulletin, there's a little handout in there with some blanks if you want to follow along, help you keep you focused. Uh, we're going to see first, it's good to be an elder. It is good to be an elder. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, the ESV translation will be on the screen. Let's look at the first seven verses together. Uh, but, but the year, I want to take you back. Go with me in back in time to six years ago, 2015, where my dream was not to be a pastor at all. It was to become an elementary school teacher, you know, puppet skills, and, and to be a basketball coach. So I call it basketmentary teaching. So here at the church, uh, we had Pastor Larry, who I liked to call Yoda with a Bible. And uh, he and the elders, they approached me, and they asked if I would be interested in becoming a full-time pastor here at the church. 
I said, I do not have any interest in being the full-time pastor here at the church. Thank you very much. Uh, I had gone to four years of schooling to be an elementary school teacher. I was actually in the middle of student teaching, and the principal at K Beach Elementary had offered me a sixth grade position on a silver platter, which was kind of my dream scenario. So here I've got the, the, the dream job at the dream, church, at the dream school. I had zero interest in being a pastor. I loved preaching. I loved being involved in the church. But full-time and, and the counseling and the meetings and the, and the vision statements? Vision statements? Ugh! Right? Who, what weirdo likes vision statements? So the elders, they did a little bit of whining and dining. Well, dining and Kool-Aiding because it's a church. Um, but, but the turning point was not, it was not their coercion. It was actually a surrender of my own heart to the Lord. When I said, Father, what do you want me to do? This is my, this is your, I belong to you. I have ideas, I have dreams, I have a vision for my own life, but I am yours. And what was the coolest thing, one of the coolest things I've ever experienced in my life is, and the best way I can say it is that God changed my heart. He gave me a set of desires that I did not previously have. It was not screaming and kicking into this position out up onto this stage. It was a new set of desires, or at least a realization of those desires. And now, I love vision statements. <laughs> it might be a little bit of a stretch, but I like them. I can tolerate them. I, I, I want to be the pastor. I love being a pastor, so please continue to tithe. Uh, that would be great. Um, so we see in verse 1, uh, he says, the, the saying is trustworthy. Now, when we hear this phrase, uh, we need, our ears need to perk up a little bit because he uses it several times in the letter. These are key moments. Remember, these false teachers that are not trustworthy have been saying lots of things. And Paul, sent by the authority and word of God, says, you can trust what I'm telling you. The first time he said it, he was talking about the gospel back in chapter 1. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We just sang that song. And then, so the first time he's talking about the gospel, the second time, what we're going to actually see is he's talking about the leadership of that gospel's message and teaching um, in the local church, which shows us how critical church leadership is. Now, when he says, he says, this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So what does he mean by overseer? Uh, this idea of, of oh, I, I kind of, sometimes I can have a negative connotation with something this. It's like someone looking down their nose at you, up on their tiptoes, like seeing how you're doing, make sure you're up to snuff. But let's let the Bible inform this concept of, of overseeing. So if you remember uh, in, our, in our Bible story, after Jesus rises from the dead, before he returns to the Father, what does he do? He says, he sends his, his disciples or his apostles out to make disciples of all nations, right? Now, these sent ones are his apostles. That word means sent ones. So he sends them out, and they go to all these cities and towns around the known world, and they start preaching the gospel and planting churches where the gospel takes seed. Now, in each of these local churches, they appoint these elders. They call them elders. In Acts chapter 4, we see that terminology used again in Titus. These are elders. These are local leaders of these individual churches. Now, there's a few, um, two, few terms that they use for these leaders. We see the word elders, we see the word overseers, the word pastors, which is just kind of more of a Bible word for a shepherd, a shepherd of people. Now, I believe that each of these roles is actually the same thing, by and large. And I get that. First Peter 5 says, so I exhort the elders among you, so again, talking to elders, shepherd the flock. There's that word for pastor, same word. That is among you, exercising oversight, to be overseers. So you see these three terms, which are used interchangeably throughout Scripture, the same exact expressions used in Acts chapter 20 when Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus. So we see these, these roles talked about. Now, each of these does bring a different aspect of this role. We see the word elder, which literally just means older in age. So someone who's, who's older. 
right? And as I'm getting more salt in this pepper on my face, I'm, I'm moving that direction. This wasn't a certain, like, you got to be like the president, you got to be 35 years old, or wasn't it? But what, what really it's speaking to is the concept of maturity. Uh, this would be a mature believer, and we'll talk more about that in, in this passage. And then this word overseer, the word means seeing things are done right. What did he say the purpose? He said, I want to, you to instruct the Ephesian church into how they ought to live as, as a body. And so these elders are given this leadership direction to make sure that we're going in God's gospel direction. This speaks to the task of the role that they're in. And finally, the word pastor. I love this because this captures what they're doing, the shepherding. This word, it it gives you that imagery of feeding, of nourishing, of tending, guarding, and keeping those sheep from the world around them. This gives us the heart of the role, how they should flesh this out. And so we see these different aspects of, of eldering. Now, and what he says about this is, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. This word aspires means to stretch out, like you're reaching, trying to grasp something, to desire it. So in a few hours, when I'm sitting there on the couch watching the Buccaneers beat the Chiefs, <clears throat> there's, there's church division if I've ever seen it. I am aspiring toward the chip dip, right? I'm reaching out. I want to grasp it. I'm too lazy to get up and go over and grab it, right? I want it. I'm reaching for it. That's the concept here. And he says to desire, to desire this role, it's actually, it's good. He says he desires a noble task. It's a good thing. This word noble means good, praiseworthy, precious, excellent. Or my favorite part here, handsome. One of the qualifications for an elder that I just, I got that one on lock, right? Um, and, and humble, right? I think that's another one of the ones we're going to talk about. So what we see here is, he says, why, it's good to desire this. Why is it good? Why would he need to tell them it's good to desire this? Well, what's going on? They're seeing all these bad examples of leaders in their church, these false teachers that are destroying and perverting this role. And he goes, it's not the role. It's the people who have twisted the role. No, it's good to desire this thing. Just like the Lord laid it on my heart to be a shepherd here at Peninsula Grace. He said it's good to desire this, but this is what it ought to look like. We see it's good to be an elder, but then it's how to be a good elder is what he wants to talk about in the remaining part of the passage. Now, uh, when I was at at, uh, Bible school, I had a teacher who at first I thought was awesome. Uh, He kind of reminded me of your Boy Meets World fan of Mr. Turner the cool teacher, right, wearing the leather jacket. And he was dynamic, he was funny, he was smart, he was eloquent, he was cool. Like, after lunch, we would all go out and play ultimate frisbee, and he would play with us, and he was really good. That's cool, right? So he's a cool guy. But what I started to notice about his character as, as the semesters went on, he sort of had this inner click that he liked, that were his boys, and he wouldn't really go outside of that in interaction. He ignored a lot of the students who weren't maybe as athletic or bright as some of them, and he would oftentimes try to talk to him after class, didn't really have time for people, really liked talking about himself and building himself up, super, can be super sarcastic and cutting with uh, his, his class. And I had another teacher who at first I didn't think was as awesome. Uh, a little bit different in the way he presented it. Uh, sort of awkward. Sort of awkward. Had a stuffy nose. It sounded like he had a stuffy nose whenever he talked. And he had this, this T-Rex arms when he taught. And he, he was not athletic, right? Hard to throw a Frisbee when you've got the, the T-Rex thing going on. But over time, what I found from this man was he was the most humble, sincere, kind man I had ever met. And the way he treated his students, regardless of their brains or their brawn, And even us little arrogant 19-year-olds, he would be patient and kind with every question, every retort we had in class. He met us in the class and out of the class with grace. What we see is leadership is critical at every level. 
But what's most critical about leadership is not the degrees hanging on someone's wall. It's not their specific personality type, what, like a specific Enneagram number that they had to produce, or a certain look, a height, a weight, a style, not how athletic they are. What matters the most is, is their character. And in, in this passage, Paul doesn't focus on what the elder does, but he focuses on who the elder is called to be the kind of person that they are. And we're going to see this list. The following verses are a description that he paints of a qualified elder. I want to think about three things before we get into the list. The first thing is he's not focusing on competency as much as he is character. There is competency in the list and and to be in a leadership role. But he says what matters most is the person first, right? It's the person first. The second thing is that it's not exhaustive, but it's authoritative. This list, he's not necessarily given, it's just like this list of spiritual gifts we see in the Bible. It's not necessarily, here is every single qualification. It's the definitive list. Remember, he's addressing church leaders. And we're going to see in this book that he is calling out specific things that their leadership was struggling with. So it's not exhaustive, but it is authoritative. Why? Not because it comes from Paul, but because it ultimately comes from God, who inspired Paul to say what he's going to say. And it does have universal application for us today. Finally, what we're going to see here is it's not perfection that he's calling them to, but it's maturity. It's not, not perfection. We're not looking for super elder. If this was a, if this was a test... None, uh, if this is a test at our church for our elders, there would not be one of us that would nail 100% of every single thing that he's going to lay out every single time. That we're always self-controlled. That we're always gentle. That we never quarrel. That we never care too much about money. That we always parent perfectly. That we never struggle with pride. If that was the standard, to never have a flaw in that, there wouldn't be no elders, right? We're going to see later there's only one man perfectly kept these qualifications. God's not looking for moral perfection. What he's looking for is mature believers. Leaders who, yes, are sinners just like everybody else. But when they do struggle with these things, these things need to be the exception, not the rule. These are the exception, not the rule. And when they do mess up, like everybody does, they are quick to own it, to confess, and to repent. We see mature believers because these are, we're going to see these are things that we all ought to strive for as believers. The elders are just good examples, should be good examples of what the mature believer looks like. So having said that, let's look at the qualifications themselves. It says in verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This word above or phrase above reproach, it means unable to accuse them, to reproach them. And again, it doesn't mean that you could never point out any sin or any flaw in their life. But as you look at the scope of their life, you see this mature fruit being produced as a believer. Now, accuse them of what? Well, I believe that the rest of the list is unpacking the things that you shouldn't be able to accuse them of. The first thing he says here is the husband of one wife. The husband of of one wife. The first area of being above reproach is in sex and marriage. Now, no, he does. I don't think he's trying to communicate here that he must be married. But he's saying that the the literal Greek is a one-woman man. We're talking about sexual and marital faithfulness, which would mean at the time when polygamy was very common, that they would have one wife. They would not have multiple wives. This also speaks to adultery, to to to, to not be unfaithful, yes, to that wife. And of course, we know Jesus says that adultery can happen in the heart. We talked about the statistics with pornography. It's part of that unfaithfulness. And we know the Bible, I mean, there's some, there's some thorny stuff that we don't have to get into, time to get into today about divorce and remarriage. 
But at the heart of what he's saying, I believe, is this is the kind of man that has one woman, one wife, and says to her, I will love you, put you before myself until death do us part. The next thing he says, I want to put a couple of them together here, to be sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard. Now these three concepts are essentially the idea of being in control. And whether it's in these arenas of, of food or drinks so or physical appetites, sexual appetites, as he just mentioned, that it would be the concept of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I will not be mastered by anything. That these are people who are in control of these things. They do not let those things control them. Because you can imagine if they do not have self-control in those departments, the kind of leader that does not have self-control is not going to take the church in a good direction. The next thing he says is respectable. This word can be translated modest or I like well-arranged. They should be well-arranged. And, and this is the same word, if you were with us last week in chapter 2, when he talked about the dress that the women were supposed to have in the church, it's the same word that he uses there, modest. And what he's saying is if the heart, the inward, is self-controlled, that's going to appear outwardly too, in the way that you dress, but even more so in the way that you behave, the way you treat other people. So the inward reflects outward. The next word is hospitable. This one's often overlooked, and it means more than just being able to throw a good tea party. Uh, to be hospitable, and this is a cool word in the Greek, it means love of stranger. So philo, phila, Philadelphia, brotherly love, that's the word for, one of the words for like a friendship love. And xenos, or xenos, which is stranger or alien, if you know the word xenophobia. So this idea is that you would love those that are different than you, those outside of your home, that you'd be willing to welcome them in. We see Jesus talk about this with the Good Samaritan and shows his heart toward those that we might have occasionally uh, mislabeled as an enemy. He says, you're called to love all of those around you. And then he gets to the one area of competency on the list of able to teach. Uh, we said last week that the elder's role from looking at chapter 2 is to teach with authority. So we're teaching God's word in an authoritative manner in the church, not heavy-handed saying we believe this is our church's best understanding of the word of God. Now, this doesn't just happen in the pulpit. I'm doing that here right now, but we also see this. Our elders are teaching in the youth group, Daniel, with the, with the high school students on Sunday nights and junior hires on Wednesday nights. We see right now in our Sunday school classes, our children's ministries, uh, Scott and, and Ross and Brad are teaching our young ones along with other teachers. We see this happening one-on-one -on -one in discipleship relationships in our small groups here with our community groups. This is happening formally, informally, teaching. They need to be able to teach God's word. Then we also see here uh, to not be violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. And again, this is a concept of, of being in control. And I just want to pause here and to say that there's a, this is a sensitive subject. And, and I'm sorry that our hearts break and we weep with those who weep who have experienced violence within the role of leadership in their lives, whether that's in the home, whether that's in the workplace, whether that is in the church even, sadly. That is not our God's heart. Each of these roles are reflecting a, a character of God. And our God is a gentle, good God. He is not a violent, forceful God. And therefore, our leaders should reflect that and not be violent, but gentle. He also says to not be quarrelsome. What do we see in chapter 1? The vain speculations and the empty arguments, the nonstop quarreling. He says you should not be one that's given to fights and disputes and, 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 and backbiting and devouring one another. Um, we also see not being a lover of money. Uh, Peter says a similar thing over in uh, 1 Peter 5. He says that they should elder or shepherd not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Because they want to. Not because they have to, and in order to give to those around them, not to take. 
And we see this is actually one of the things that the, the leaders here were really struggling with. In chapter 6, he says these leaders who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. They saw this as an avenue to make a buck. And sadly, oftentimes in church leadership, we can see people who are just in it for the fame and the fortune. And that they are trying to build up a brand for themselves instead of building up the name of Jesus. And, it's, and because of that, they'll often start comp compromising the truth. Because if they're just trying to get more money, put more people in the chairs and the pews, they're going to say whatever. Instead of speaking the truth in love, they're going to start to ear tickle to grow that congregation. Still waiting for my personal jet. It's coming. So verse 4, what does he say? He says, um, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, I don't believe this means that you must have children in order to be an elder. And I also don't think it means that those children have to be perfect, right? If the elder's not perfect, the kids. We're not just looking for the Von Trapps, right? And so what is he saying? Because ultimately, we cannot, we, I can't control anybody else's ultimate will. But what does he say? The emphasis here is how are you managing your home? Are you managing well? Usually, the rule, not the exception, is that good parenting will lead to respect and, and obedience. That's the, the usual, not the always, right? And we know we live in a, a messy world. But I think the question should be, what is the management looking like? How, and, and why is that important? So he says in verse 5, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He says, if you're not managing your own home well, how can you, man how can you add that responsibility of managing God's household? Now, I think this also shows us a bit of the job description. And I love the, the image that's painted here for the elder in the church is not a general to his soldiers. It's not a master to his slave. This is a father to a child. This is a, this is a brother to a sister. This is family. This is love and tender shepherding care. Then he says in verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. This is the idea of being a new believer. And why would it be important that this person, this elder, wouldn't be a new believer? Well, he says, or he may become puffed up with conceit. I remember when I was fresh out of Bible school, I thought I knew everything, period, probably, about the Bible in particular. I'd have been a terrible elder early on. I would have come to the church with this arrogant, I have the standard, I know all the right answers. That would not have been a healthy way to enter into leadership. Why does he say to, to not to rush into that? He says, here's the result. He'll fall into, he could, he could, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What was Satan's fall? Here he was, the right-hand man of God, and he starts looking at himself. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I want to be like God. I want to take his throne. And that pride comes before the fall. And he wants to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen there in the body. It takes time for a believer to grow, to develop and prove their Christ-like character. We're not looking for sizzle. We're looking for steak. And the last one, he says, is to be, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought of by outsiders. So outsiders mean those outside the church, the non-believers. Now you might say, well, wait a second. The world's not going to look. I mean, he says, Paul later says in other places, he who lives a godly life will be persecuted, right? If we're preaching this offensive message that we are sinners who need a savior, we're not winning any popularity contests. So how can we be well thought of? By those who don't agree, by definition, they're non-believers. They don't believe what we're saying. Well, I think when you look at this list, especially in contact with char the characteristics, these people may not agree with our beliefs. And they might actually find our beliefs offensive. But they better not find us offensive. And I think he's saying that we should, they should still respect our integrity and our behavior. So you have a coworker who might disagree and find your belief in Jesus exclusionary. And maybe even according to them, that belief is, is hateful in some areas. But 
what is the way you're, we're living amongst them? Do we have integrity in the way that we conduct our, 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 our financial and, 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 and our behavior, uh, behavioral lives around them? Are we treating people with kindness? The way that we live our lives ought to not be offensive, even when the message may be to the flesh. And why does he say, what does he say could happen? So that he may fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's make no mistake, Satan wants to destroy the church. And and he believes that he's going to target believers because he does not want Jesus' name to be worshipped. He does not want people to come back to God. So he targets leaders and he targets their reputation. And often he's wildly successful. It is, to, it, is to, it is, we see so often that the people will say, I don't want to go to the church. Why? Because there are a bunch of hypocrites in there. And a lot of times, it's an accurate accusation. We need to be asking, how do we conduct ourselves? Our community should be known by our love. Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We should be loving each other in-house and loving the community around them, around, around us. And that pace is set by our leaders. So those are the characteristics that ought to mark a, 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 us as, as churches, uh, the elders of the church. But I'm going to close with, with a few application points. The only true good elder, number three, the only truly good elder. Now, some of you might be scratching your head thinking, well, wait a second. Why do we even you know, go through this passage today? I don't want to be an elder. I'm never going to be an elder. So why should I care? Well, first of all, be careful. I said the same thing. You never know. But three reasons why I think we need to know this passage and how we can apply it. Number one, know who your elders are and how they should live. We need to know who our elders are and how they should live. So, uh, pop quiz. You're at Senior Ponchos uh, after church. Well, today you're probably just going to go straight to the Super Bowl party. But if someone was to ask you, hey, Peninsula Grace, right, who's your pastor? Now, if you were to say Justin, I would say, eh, you were wrong, right? No horchata for you. We, we, now I am one of your pastors. In fact, every, every morning when I introduce myself here, I say, I am Justin, one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace. I believe that the Bible teaches a plurality of leaders, that there is not just one leader of the local church, that there are, uh, there's a plurality. I think this guards against one person's way, one person's opinion, one person's perspective. It can lead to arrogance. And our God has called this a teamwork, right? The God, God himself is three in one working together as a team, and I believe that's his heart for us as well. Doesn't mean it's the easier way, doesn't necessarily mean it's the more efficient way, but it is his design for us, I believe the Bible teaches. And so our current elders, uh, right now, here's a a list of them. We have some pictured in the back there as well. Um, These men, who I I can assure you don't want their pictures up on the screen, but (laughs) I'm in control of the clicker. Um, So these are the men, Drew uh, Dixon, uh, with the cowboy hat on there, the only way you can really recognize Drew. Uh, He is our elder chair, and the rest of these guys are our elders. Now you might see in the back on the terminology, and you know, we'll say, wait a second, you say you're a pastor, the other guys say elder, what's the difference there? Really, that's just a cultural terminology that we try to use for clarity. The three pastors on staff, Ross, Daniel, and myself, we call them pastor, because if I was, you know, good morning, I'm, I'm Elder Justin. Now, that brings a different connotation, right? You might think there's going to be me and a, and a friend with a name tag on your door sometime. So, so we use pastor because that's what our culture uses. But we believe that we are all elders and we have this, we, none of us have more authority than the other. I would say it this way. We don't have authority apart from one another. I'm a part of the elder board that God's given authority in our church. But we don't have authority above each other and we don't have authority apart from each other. It is the team together that makes decisions that leads our church by the spirit of God and his word. 
So these men, they meet every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., just about when Jesus is getting up. And here we have, this is a group shot of us over in the other building. And we, uh, every Tuesday morning, we pray for our flock. We pray for specific people by name. Uh, we, we also uh, gather together to seek God's direction for our church prayerfully, uh, humbly. And, and we also uh, study the sermon passage that's going to be coming up that Sunday. I want to make sure I'm not preaching heresy, right? And we were able to share in that. And it's a beautiful time to be able to be in the word and prayer together. Week after week, these men care for our flock through prayer. Through, through teaching, through humble acts of service. Last year, Ross was over in Sunshine Park uh, during Sunday morning scrubbing puke off of the Sunshine Park carpet, right? That's love. One of your precious little lambs was uh, not feeling good. And, uh, yuck. <laughs> These are by no means perfect men, right? Especially Daniel. Especially, no, I'm just <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. But I believe that these are, these are humble, qualified, faithful servants of our God. And one of the reasons that we need to know these qualifications, whenever there's a new elder stepping in or an elder is up for a new term, we come as a congregation and the members vote on these elders. And we want to know as a body, are these, are these men living how God has called them to here in 1 Timothy? Because maybe, maybe you saw something that we didn't. You know something that we don't. You say, I saw Paul down at the Duck Inn this weekend. He was not acting like an elder, right? And what were you doing at the duck? That's my question. Uh, so we, what we see is, we, we see this call to know the qualifications for these men. And there should be accountability for me, for our leaders. And we see this, how important this was here in Timothy. As the church, as the leader goes, so goes the church. But we also need to know this, number two, to know how we all ought to live. Remember what he said the purpose statement was at the end of chapter three? That you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God how we all ought to behave. I believe the characteristics that we just read, they wouldn't just be for an elder. They apply to all of us. I think they're essentially the fruit of the Spirit manifesting themselves in the leadership. And we are all called to bear the Spirit's fruit. I think even the call to be able to teach. We are all called to be disciple makers who make disciple makers. We all ought to know how to proclaim God's truth to the world around us. Again, no one on this side of heaven will do this perfectly, but we're striving toward mature Christ-likeness. Paul said this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are called to imitate our elders to the degree that they are imitating Jesus himself. Now, I'm not saying that all should be elders, and and as we said last week, we, we do believe that this role is for men in our church, but that we should all be called to live as Jesus. Now, having said that, we are a growing church, and shepherds can only effectively shepherd so many sheep. And so maybe it is God laying it on your heart to pursue leadership in this form or another. And it's a noble thing to aspire toward that for the right reasons and with the right character. But we are all called to reflect the character of Jesus, which is where I want to land the plane that we are to know the only truly good shepherd. See, none of us, none of the men that we put up on the screen are the head of this church. That role has already been taken. There is one head, and his name is Jesus. There is one chief shepherd. There is one husband to this body of Christ, the bride, and that is Jesus Christ himself, the shepherd of us all. One of my favorite terms that people use for an elder like myself is an under-shepherd. We are also being shepherded and led and guided by Jesus. John 10, he says it this way, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. And what does he say the good shepherd does to protect his sheep? He lays his life down for his sheep. 
It's through the sacrifice and risen Jesus, our good shepherd, that he can lead us to quiet waters and, and green grass, that he is walking us through those valleys of the shadow of death that we encounter in our lives. And this, this husband is a good husband toward his bride. That he gave himself up for her to wash her and clean her and present her pure and spotless before God one day. He's the only one who perfectly keeps that list that we just looked at. And he's not only the great example of it, but he's also the one that empowers us as the great teacher, the Holy Spirit, in our lives that we might become as he is. Jesus models the right kind of leadership. It's not exerting his power on top of us, but by leading gently. It's, he did not come, he says, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate model as a, for what a good shepherd is, and he's the only hope that we have to be healthy leaders and a healthy church that glorifies God by the grace of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his ultimate model on the cross and through the resurrection the kind of leader that he showed what, what you really do with that level of leadership and authority. You don't exert it. You don't, you don't come for the, your own fame, your own gain, but we come as servant leaders to lay our lives down in love and sacrifice, surrender to God for those around us. And Father, I pray for the, the men in our church that are, that are leading. Thank you for the unity. Thank you for the direction that you've given them in this church through a difficult year that we've just come through. And we trust that you will be the same God that will shepherd us through the, the year to come. Pray for those this morning that this may, have, this may have touched on some sensitive areas of their own experience with unhealthy church leadership. I pray that there might be mending, where there's been a tear, that there be healing and restoration, where there's been a brokenness. And that by your grace, God, we could be the kind of church that glorifies your name by the way that we love one another. It is only in our good shepherd's name that we can pray these things. Amen.